You're listening to Another episode of Books and Bobo, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we're here to talk about our August 2020 book club pick, The Empress of Salt and Fortune by Ni Vo, which is an Asian inspired fantasy novella.、Um, Rira, it's September as of this yes, recording.、Um, our valley is literally on fire. On fire. <laughs> It's it's like 109 where I am right now. which is, Oh, what? Yeah.、Uh, like where I live, it was like 98 degrees. Really? You、yeah. live pretty close to me. You should definitely check、oh. your. <laughs> no, no, no. I checked yesterday. It was on my phone. Oh. So, like,、uh, I don't know why. It, it was cooler in my area, but I'm pretty sure it got hotter、uh, after I checked my phone. <laughs> Probably. I, but I checked it at 2 p.m., which is the hottest. Time during the day. So I don't know. I mean, you live like 20 minutes away from me. So I can't imagine your weather being that much different than mine. So、um, maybe there's some weather magic in your area, just like in the book that we read.、Um, well, if there was weather magic, I would, I would prefer it to be actual September weather. <laughs>、uh, <laughs> that's something that I've. I still haven't gotten used, used to as someone who moved to LA from, from、yeah. states that actually have fall weather. <laughs> I mean, for those of you who don't know, in Southern California, our peak summer heat runs from August all the way to like mid October. So we have like an extended summer out here that really pisses all the East Coasters off. It really messes with our rhythm, you know? <laughs> Also, I have a closet full of coats that I'll never wear ever because <laughs> there's no fall, there's no pre snow type of season over here. So, I mean,、yeah. this past year we actually had a winter,、um, and we do have winter weather, we just haven't had it in a while. So, who knows? You might be able to wear, break out your coats this, this winter as well. I don't know. Our winter is just rain. <laughs> The bright side is we're now entering the last, what, third of 2020.、Um, so hopefully, this national or international nightmare will be over soon.、Um, although we did say 2019 was trash and there was no way to go but up in 2020. And that was totally wrong.、Uh, yeah, the publishing industry, they've pretty much told their editors to not come into the office until January. <laughs> So, even they know that it's not going to be quote unquote normal until at least then. I, I, I have my doubts. I don't think it's going to be normal until February or March next year. <laughs> well, good thing we can do our podcast over the internet remotely so we don't have to、um, worry about social distancing and all that stuff、uh, getting in the way of this podcast. There ain't no stopping books and boba. We're going to keep this train going. Yeah, it's going to be four years at the end of this month. I know. Wow. We're like. We, we, have, we have not taken a hiatus. We've been pretty consistent with our episodes, at least two episodes per month, but、yeah. usually like three. <laughs> so this is our, what, 36th book club pick? 
Is it? I don't know. I've lost track. I'm pretty Shouldn't sure. Be, I'm pretty yeah, good at math. So I'm pretty sure. <laughs> wow. And that doesn't include any of the books that we've read for author interviews, which we've done quite a lot of. That's true. Well, it's been a lot of fun doing this book club with you. And um, I guess congrats. Happy Books and Boba anniversary, Rira. Uh, I, I would I would wish that towards the end of September because literally <laughs> our first episode released on the twenty eighth. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we have we have some time. We still got some time. <laughs> but without further ado, let's get into what everyone's here for, which is our book club discussion of the Empress of Salt and Fortune. Um, Rira, do you want to start us off with a book jacket description? Yeah. Sure. With the heart of an Atwood tale and the visuals of a classic Asian period drama, The Empress of Salt and Fortune is a tightly and lushly written narrative about empire, storytelling, and the anger of women. A young royal from the far north is sent south for a political marriage. Alone and sometimes reviled, she has only her servants on her side. This evocative debut chronicles her rise to power through the eyes of her handmaiden, at once feminist high fantasy and a thrilling indictment of monarchy. Yeah. So, yeah, that's... <laughs> I remember when uh, this book got a lot of buzz. Um, um, the library journal said it was like the debut of the month. Uh, BuzzFeed said it was uh, pretty much like the fantasy novel of spring 2020. So I was really excited about it. Plus, um, Handmaiden's Tale and uh, political drama. Yeah, sure. That's that sounds like something that I'm really interested in. Yeah, I mean, my main thing is I don't know if the Handmaiden's Tale comparison is that um, descriptive of what this story really is, because to me, it definitely was a pro woman story, but. I don't really know if I got Handmaiden Tale vibes from it, besides the fact that there's like a Handmaiden in it. You know, I actually got more of uh, the Handmaiden, the the Korean movie. <laughs> uh, I got more of that vibe because that movie is um, it's told in multiple multiple perspectives, and uh, the story is not what it seems like, and you kind of have to like piece together. Um, everyone's motives and how their plans and motives like fit together. So it kind of reminded me more of that movie. Yeah. Which is also based on a book. <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, it's based on the fingersmith by uh, Sarah waters, which I highly recommend. It's, it's great. Yeah. It, it's also queer, which is, you know, this book is also very queer. Yeah. It's a very queer friendly story. There's a lot of different um, characters on all sides of the LGBTQ spectrum. Um, and I guess we can start with just how the story is set up. So the story is told through, I guess, would you call this second person narrative? Is that what this is? Or No, it's third person narrative. Right. Actually, it's third person. And then when it switches to flashbacks, when Rabbit is telling the story, that's first person. Right. So, but basically the main character or or the protect i mean they're not even protagonists right like the i guess perspective character um through the story like the main character is a monk or in this world a cleric named chi who is coded as a non-binary they go by they them pronouns um and their magical talking bird companion who is 
actually like a supercomputer, right? It's like a they're like a bird that can remember and archive everything it sees and hears. You know, I had to Google what the what a hoopo was because <laughs> I like through context clues. I was like, okay, it's a bird, but I don't know what this bird looks like. Yeah, <laughs> looks like so I had to Google Google what it was. I mean, right off the bat, and we can talk about this later or now if we want, but. It's this book is a novella, so it's really short. It's like 128 pages, I want to say, or it's it's less than 150 pages. Um, oh, what? Okay, so I I just checked how many pages it was on Kindle. It's 112 pages. Okay, so even less. Yeah. And in those short amount of pages, it does a ton of world building. And I know this is something that you and I have thoughts about, but like to me, I feel like it did a lot of world building through giving really sparse details and requiring the reader to kind of fill in the blanks like right, right off the bat you have a talking bird which it took me a while to figure out it was a bird um you have like supernatural elements in this world like hungry ghosts yeah and you have like implied magic in the world too there's allusions to mages and weather magic like we like we mentioned so like right off the bat it kind of throws you into this world that the reader has to figure out what's going on through context clues totally independent of the actual narrative because i think even without the like the fantastical elements i feel like the narrative does also stand alone on its own as like a you know a story of political intrigue and rebellion yeah um the setting the scene is set up quite nicely um you you do since the book is really short. You do have to catch a lot of details. If you read through it quickly, the book is done within a blink of an eye. <laughs> so you really have to take your time uh, digesting the story and really soak in the details. Or you have to do what I did, which is read the book twice. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and I, I will say that uh, during the second read, I like I realized that I missed a lot of details from the first read um, because a lot of the times, like after each flashback rabbit tells um, rabbit tells Chi, do you understand? And when I read it the second time, I was, I was like, okay, no, I did not understand. I did not understand that um, like a lot of the objects that were, that were um, present throughout the novel. I didn't really understand their importance <laughs> as much, um, especially like the, what was one of the objects? Uh, the star charts and, and uh, oh, yeah. the box of, and the box of black salt. Like it kind of flew over my head when I read it for the first time. Oh. So I was really, so I was really grateful that I read <laughs> it the second time and understood like, um, like who died <laughs> and, uh, and just like a lot of how um, Empress Inyo kind of smuggled information to the north, and how she got how how she like usurped the throne. So I was really appreciative of like the small, subtle details. Yeah, I was able to. I mean, the star maps. I was able to get that the first time around. Um, the salt part. I think that was when you started to realize that. There was more going on than just like a recounting of this um, Empress's exile. Um, I guess we can discuss like what did you think about the overall story of this 
like Empress who is so basically Empress Inyo is the Empress in name only. It's a political marriage between the country that the story takes place in, which is the Empire of An, and their northern neighbor, which is they're coded as like more warlike and like kind of like mixed between Vikings and Mongolians, I want to say. Yeah, I think um, that's accurate. <laughs> um, and basically, the emperor sired a son, like an heir with the empress, and then like threw her away to exile in this, um, I guess, this lake manor that becomes like her prison for a number of years, probably like almost a decade, right? Yeah, you have to you have to really catch on to that because it's such a short book, and you expect it to be, uh, you know, chronological. But you're like, oh no, like a decade passed b- between chapters. <laughs> so yeah, yeah it, if you if you read it fast, you like it, you might miss that detail. Just a heads up. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the Atwood uh, parallels here is like this takes place in a very patriarchal society where the value of women is almost non-existent and that's personified by i mean the emperor is the big bad but they're kind of a pushover what the the real bad guy that you see is the the minister of the left who antagonizes the empress like every chapter pretty much i mean what did you think about the the, um the coup that the empress plans throughout the story and the way that that's built up because i know a lot of our um, book club members mentioned on Goodreads that the actual plot takes a while to get going. Like it takes a good almost half of the book before you start putting the pieces together that the Empress is planning a coup. The fact that Empress Inyo wins is already established from like the first few pages of this of the novel. Yeah. Um so the book is set 60 years after the events that Rabbit has told. And she is traveling through uh, traveling through the unsealed road because the empress, you know, she had closed down all of the places uh, she used to live in before her ascension through the throne. And I think that's like really interesting because, um, you know, history is written by the victors and yeah. and there's kind of like this mythological history to Empress Inyo uh, and it's the history of the North and South being merged together. It's kind of, you know, a lot of the bloodiness isn't really mentioned. It's not the history that is being taught to the people of, of the North and South that is that is now merged. And um, and you and it's the people who are overlooked. It's the people who you know, weren't who weren't royalty, who didn't hold official government positions, who know the truth. And they were the ones who made the coup possible. Yeah. Um, It's a really interesting framing device because, um, so Chi is part of an order of clerics who act as, I guess, world historians. Like they're archivists. They're in charge of gathering information and keeping it safe. Um, and there was a really interesting passage towards, I think, the last, la- the latter half of the book, or even the last third, where their bird companion says that, yeah, like we have enough information to topple all the thrones of the world if we wanted to. And I thought that was really interesting because because of what you're saying, like the difference between like record and romance, right? Like it's it's like um, uh, you've heard of Romance of the Three Kingdoms, right? Oh yeah, it's 
<laughs> it's like it's like the most famous myth in Asia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so there are actually two um there are two texts of that story. There's the romance of the three kingdoms and the records of the three kingdoms. The record of the three kingdoms is the actual like historical text. And the romance is the dramatic adaptation of that text. Um, right? It's like the um the King Arthur adaptation of the historical text. Um, so it's really interesting that this is invoking that same delineation where there's a difference between yeah, the myth and the actual record. And the fact that like when you take power, it's never victimless, right? Like throughout the story, Empress Inyo sacrifices a lot of innocent people um, to succeed in taking power. And you can see throughout the book that it does take a toll on her, but she has to play the part in order to to win, right? In order to survive. Yeah, I think there there was an there was a passage where um, Sukai, one of the fortune tellers and also Rabbit's lover, uh, is taken away by the minister, and Rabbit says, "You could have made him stay," and Empress Inyo says, "I know, but it would have cost me something else," and. Rabbit in the narration says how for Empress Inyo, the sacrifice was cheap uh, because she would be able to get men during the pilgrimage. She would be able to get soldiers. She would be able to pass out information and also figure out how guarded certain areas were. And it all, all it took her was sacrificing one fortune teller. Whereas for Rabbit, it's, you know, it's her lover. It's the father of her, her future child. And to Rabbit, you know, that sacrifice cost her everything. It cost her, um, you know, like she doesn't have a husband and she doesn't have a father for her future child. And at some point, Empress Inyo says, you know, royalty were bred to be selfish and, um, you know, we're bred to we're bred to see things as cost to get what we want, and I thought that was really, um, you know, like I thought I thought it was really pensive, I guess, because if you compare it to our own history, the history of every revolution, you know, the human cost isn't really talked about. It's about you know, it's about the rulers and the generals and. Yeah. Yeah, it's about the battles. I would hesitate to call this a revolution even. I mean, I guess it's a revolution in terms of like overthrowing a patriarchy with a matriarchy. So I guess in that end, it's kind of um, revolutionary. But to me, it was still more of like a power struggle between monarchists, right? Monarchies. But that aside, it did. um, I think that scene was probably one of the more, more powerful ones in the book. Because at this point, you know that Rabbit is um, basically her only friend that stuck with her throughout her entire, I guess, tenure as the Empress, right? So, like, for the reader to even get a glimpse of the turmoil that this one betrayal causes the Empress, I think it really was one of the more um, affecting scenes of the story. Because, I mean, you do see glimpses of this in her, like, especially when um, Kazu is forced to leave, but... Otherwise, she often has this kind of aloof personality that's more like pragmatic and um, cold. Yeah, um, 
You know, I didn't really catch the importance of Kazu until towards like the <laughs> third act of the book because you're like, okay, Kazu is a lady in court who's kind of lost the interest of the emperor and she's kind of here um, to just keep an eye on the empress. But, you know, she bonds with the empress and the rabbit and she wants to stay. But Empress Inyo says, no, you have to go back in a very cold and aloof way. And you don't understand like how important Kazu is because she, because what happens is that she brings the fortune tellers to Empress Inyo. And yeah. through those fortune tellers, she is able to pass codes to uh, the North and be able to recruit soldiers. And, you know, like later on, they try to look for Kazu and she's disappeared. She she was just an well, unpopular courtesan. I mean, to me, the Empress being cold to her when she left was her way of deflecting any affection she has for her because she knows that if the minister suspects that Kazu has sympathies for the Empress, like she's done. Like there's no way she's like getting out alive, right? That was her way of at least helping her survive until she can like come back to her later. Yeah, I I mean like I I still thought it was pretty amazing that such a large part of the coup came from came from Kazu, who was who was only there for like a brief moment, and well, uh, I I just thought that that was like a really good way to set set all of the um set set everything in motion pretty much set um i mean kazu offers the empress the the means to conduct her um espionage right so um a lot of the second half of the book or like the chapter after kazu leaves is where you start to realize and that's the chapter where um um, they talk about the star charts, right? And how um, the star charts are wrong. And the um, the reason that the star charts that the Empress has is wrong is because they're not actual star charts. They're communications between her and her spies and her, um, her spy network that she builds through Kazu's connections. Like that part was really interesting that she was literally conducting a high-level spy network in her bedrooms, in her like pajamas, um, in her like house arrest prison. I think it was even before her house arrest prison because it was, you know, when she was still staying at the palace, she quote unquote grew this obsession for fortune tellers. And I, I don't know if she was really obsessed with fortune tellers at that time or if she was already planning a coup. Because I don't think so. I, I, because she's able to, she's able to really like win because uh the because the palace thinks that she's you know yeah she's i mean just a I, flipping I think girl. it was it was a long con for sure because i think i mean her as a pragmatic person i don't see her actually believing in like the the frou-frou stuff but i mean she's cunning enough to know that if she hides her illicit activities behind things that are hand waved away as girl stuff She's able to play into the stereotypes that the patriarchy has of women while essentially having a way to pass messages without being intercepted. Yeah, like even the pilgrimage that Inyo goes on to, you know, to eventually go to the capital and execute the minister, um, like she's able to use the excuse of 
this is a pilgrimage for women <laughs> to pray to whatever god of piety or whatnot. And she's able to use it to recruit men and come back and execute the minister. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's where you get kind of the... I mean, would that be an Atwood influence? I Okay, the thing, the thing with like... Blah 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 meets blah blah blah. <laughs> it's just a way. It's just a marketing technique. It's just a way for um, for the public to get get kind of like the feel for the world. And I do agree that you know, like it's this is a feminist tale. It's about women who are uh, oppressed in a patriarchal society, and they use whatever they use their femininity and they use whatever means necessary to have some kind of control over their destiny. Like, I do agree with that. And um, having women in very low positions, but still finding ways to be um, important to history, that's also an Atwood theme, I guess. But aside from that, not like... It doesn't really resemble the Atwood tale. Um, and then with like the whole Asian drama thing. Yeah. Like we have a lot of Asian period dramas where there's a lot of. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, the fallen empress who comes back and conquers the empire is a, at least in Chinese historical drama, is a trope. There are a ton of dramas with this storyline. Um Maybe not with as much intrigue involved or espionage involved, but the empress who does a coup to take over the empire is something that actually has happened a lot in history as well, in Chinese history. I I really like the style of um, like each chapter, there were a list of objects that are going to be that were in that were in the story that Rabbit's telling at the time. Um, and, you know, there's like these very sharp descriptions. And I really liked how these objects weren't just objects. They played a really important role in the coup. They meant something personal to the Empress and also Rabbit, even though they looked like trash. <laughs> um, one example was the birchwood that was wrapped in black hair and iron and, and a feather. And... It looks like trash. It's such a simple thing, but it carries so much meaning. Um, it's a symbol of Inyo's exile and her mother's death. And it's just told in such a, like, a succinct visual way. And, you know, if if that scene was, I don't know, like, if that scene was filmed, I think it, the impact would have been the same, would have been very powerful and... Uh, it would have been like a very quick way to deliver just like the gravity of the situation. Um, same thing with the salt box. I thought that was a really good way to show um, to show that her brother got murdered. It was her brother, right? Because um, that's what I got from the following chapter when she gets really angry that one of the generals had killed her brother. So I'm guessing that the salt box was her brother's ashes. <laughs> I mean, regardless, the, the salt box was a way for the outside world to pass messages to her. So, I mean, even throughout the book, she was finding ways to get information and pass information along between her and her supporters. 
Yeah, and things are told in... No, like I said, the objects aren't just objects. They carry a lot of meaning. Yeah, I mean, the story is framed around Cleric Chi and and their their um, curiosity towards the like these hidden events of the Empress's life that has been sealed from history, and they're excited to be the first person on scene to explore. So, I mean, they're going around archiving everything they see, writing down descriptions. And then asking Rabbit about the objects. Yeah, and I agree. It's a really interesting way to show that every object has a history um, and has meaning to the people that were involved. It's, it's literally like looking at museum exhibits, right? And seeing like these everyday objects and the history behind it. Yeah, history is told th- like if, you, if you're a historian, if you're in anthropology, you're looking at objects all day. You're categorizing uh, like where it come from, like by date, by culture. And, you know, like it's it's how history is told and discovered. And I really like the fact that Ni put that element in there. Um, history isn't, you know, you have to go beyond the textbook. You have to go beyond uh, what whatever myth is being passed around. You have to read between the lines and the fact that these small objects that are often overlooked and seems like trash and have made like a really big impact. Um, I, I really like the fact that she kind of paid tribute to, to modern historians and uh, how they're able to piece together history and look beyond uh, what, look beyond like what has been told. And I mean, so what did you think about the way that the story is framed in terms of like every chapter has the same structure, right? It starts with a description of an object that she finds um, them asking rabbit about it. And then rabbit telling a story. And that at the end, cleric Chi reflecting on that story. Um, it reminded me a lot of um, like the elders telling their grandchildren a story Uh, like a myth uh, with some kind of lesson, but they leave the grandchildren to kind of figure out the lesson and and the teachings. So it kind of did remind me of that a lot. Um, As for the structure, it, in the beginning, I did get a little bit annoyed because um, I I just kept like, I was, it just felt like I was getting whiplash but maybe like a quarter of the way through, I, th- I think I got used to it. And uh, it really built up the su- suspense. So I did really appreciate the structure. Um, and because Rabbit was such a close and loyal attendant to Empress Inyo, you never know if she is a reliable narrator. And I like the fact that she always asked Chi, do you understand and it's pretty much the same role that the reader is put in. The reader has to piece together um, all of this information. And yeah, I think it took a couple chapters for the structure to gel as well. And, and I know this is that was a complaint that a couple of our book club members had was that the book took a while to get going. Although in the grand scheme of things, it's a pretty short book. So relatively, it's, you know. It didn't take that month that long, but um, I wasn't impressed that the book was able to jam so much into such a short runtime. I mean, 
I know that there were a lot of opportunities that Nevo could have taken to really flesh out the world, but I kind of appreciate that she didn't. It's kind of like the show don't tell model in written form, which I didn't realize could be pulled off this way. It's funny how you say show, but, you know, not tell. I feel like the book told a lot because <laughs> the entire book is is narration pretty much. So, yeah, a lot of things are getting told rather than shown. Yeah, um, but you know what I mean? Like a lot of the, yeah, the, I know what the, you the mean. world I know around, what like you the, the fact that there is magic, the fact that there are ghosts, the fact that there is like this, I feel like, the lake is some sort of magical thing too, right? Like it gives off a red glow or something. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of fantastical elements in this book that I think a full on fantasy novel would have spent a chapter describing the history of that. Um, but this, but in this book you get like a line at most, like sometimes you even get like a phrase, right? Like you get a phrase saying, Oh yeah, there's a dude who, cast magic to make everyday summer for 60 years yeah like you said if it was a traditional fantasy novel they would have dove deeper into it and um would have the book would have been much longer because fantasy novels they have the tendency to be like 300 pages plus (laughs) because they just have to set up a, a lot of the world building and a lot of the rules but because this book is being told through the eyes of a handmaiden um who kind of lived, who's kind of from like a very simple background, you didn't really need all of that information. Um, Personally, as someone who, you know, is used to a lot of longer fantasy novels and really appreciates a lot of the minute details of how things work, I kind of wish that I did get more of the culture and the religion and how the magic worked. But I'm I'm pretty content with the way Nee wrote it. I understand why they wrote it that way, um, and also I'm kind of comforted with the fact that there is a sequel and it comes out in December. <laughs> so I will get more details, and maybe they'll satisfy uh, <laughs> like my curiosity for a lot of the the world building and the magic magical elements. It's a standalone sequel, though. It's not a continuation. Yeah, but it's still set in the same world. <laughs> so I think, <laughs> I, I don't know, like for for the themes of the book, for considering like who is the narrator, I think the sparse details did fit the novel. I think it's really up to personal preferences. Um, and as for people who said that it was a slow start and uh, just a lot of things happening towards the end, it, it mimics history because there are going to be decades where, you know, nothing happens. And then once a revolution happens, it things can happen within weeks. Empires can be toppled within within weeks of uh, violence or, or a coup. Um, well, I mean, I wouldn't say that not a lot happens in, in the beginning. But I think on the second reading, you start to see that she's been putting the pieces in place from the get-go, right? You mentioned that she started planting seeds that she's into fortune-telling. I think it does play on the fact that, like, even at first, the readers are also misled into thinking that the Empress may be, like, a frivolous, cold person. Where, if you look at it, knowing what the plan is, like, she's been cunning from the start. Actually, 
so like the end the ending this this is the this is probably the biggest spoiler in the book you find out that the current empress the empress that is about to be crowned um the daughter of the empress of salt and fortune is actually not the daughter of inyo uh she's the daughter of rabbit and i kind of figured out that twist as soon as rabbit got pregnant i don't know about you marvin um because in my head i was i was thinking hmm inyo she kind of gets inyo gets surgery so that she is unable to give birth to any more children and it's it's just like how did she get a daughter then uh, like the daughter would have to be adopted or um you know like I don't know, but I, I was just like, I mean, okay, it could rabbit have been is like pregnant. Monarchy. It could have been like someone. I know. From, yeah, well, I was. I was thinking about like how that happened as soon as uh, the writer said Inyo is unable to have future children. I, I was mean, trying to piece together that, and as soon as Rabbit got pregnant, I was like, oh, okay, so that's that's the big secret. That's the big reveal. I mean, also in that chapter, it ends with like a lamb line that's pretty much that pretty much confirms it, right? Um, Rabbit describes the new empress as someone who can take on wolves because she was raised by an angry mother, which is something that um, I think Fong told her about her own daughter. Uh, no, it's it was it was told from Mai, uh, one of the fortune tellers. Um, it was Mai was the one who you know who realized that Rabbit was pregnant, and Rabbit finds out that she's pregnant through Mai, and Mai comforts her by saying, "Angry mothers raise daughters fierce enough to fight wolves." And I mean, it's not exactly subtle, and I don't think it's meant to be. Um, but I think that's when I realized. So I was probably a little bit slower on the uptake um, because at that point I was still wondering if whether or not she was going to keep the baby. Yeah, um, I think a lot of people realize that the empress, the current empress, is uh, Rabbit's daughter. When Inyo tells Rabbit. I have taken everything from you. It is the nature of royalty, I am afraid. What we are bred for and what we are taught. I will not take more unless you tell me it's all right. Do you understand? And at this point, Rabbit only has her child. Um, Like her child is the only thing that is precious in her life. And the Empress is telling her, is it okay for me to take your child. This is, you know, this is your decision. I will not take her unless you tell me it's okay. And I think it's a very obvious sign of what what's to come, what the twist is. <laughs> yeah, at that point, I was still thinking, oh, is she, is she telling her to, like, get rid of the baby? That was where my head was at. Um, um, but I did think it was kind of brilliant that the Empress used uh, Rabbit's baby as, like, proof of her divine mandate to rule you know like look at this i have an immaculate consumption baby yeah i mean that that's something that happens a lot in in pretty much like every country's history there's there's gonna be like some supernatural element to it they're gonna there's gonna be exaggeration to make the leaders look great so i wasn't i wasn't surprised by by that myth by by people saying like oh she's so and that she's so powerful that she was able to have a child even though like she got surgery to make her infertile so i mean i guess overall how did you feel this is the our first novella for the book club 
Um, how did you feel Does, about... Doesn't Convenience Store Woman count as a novella? <laughs> is that a novella? I guess that was also I a guess. short one. Right? It's, I think it's, that was... It's like a short novel. It's like the in-between between a novella and a short novel, I think. Hmm. I mean, that one took... I think that one was a little bit longer, though, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a little bit longer. But mm. I I don't know. It, it was... This is probably the first official novella. Because this is what uh, it, it was being marketed as. Yeah. I mean, what did you think about reading something that's shorter? Um, because it was shorter, I thought... I don't know. I was really surprised by how much... How many events happened in such a short span of reading time. Um, I... Also bought the audiobook when I was uh, reading this, and the audiobook was only two hours long. And um, yeah, I was just I was just really surprised by the. I, I prejudged the book. <laughs> I I was like, okay, this is a short book, short novel. Like, I'm pretty sure, like, it's um, there's not a lot of time to do the world building. Like I'm, I'm curious as to like how much political intrigue is going to be in this book, and it turns out that there's a lot, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised, and I'm pretty sure that I don't know if other fantasy novellas do the same thing, where they have to like streamline all of the magical elements. Yeah, I also really enjoyed how dense it was, despite the fact that it was only like like you said, 112 pages. So another thing that our members on Goodreads um, mentioned was the fact that it ends kind of abruptly, in their opinion. Given that this is our, you know, again, our, our first official novella, how did you think the book did in terms of telling a complete story? Um, it is a complete story. It definitely has, like, I think the ending was, like, the ending was okay, did it make me want more? Yes. <laughs> I I wish there was about like 50 pages more, but then again would be venturing into the short novel territory. Um but I think where it ended, where you know, Rabbit turns out to be was Rabbit a ghost at the end? I wasn't I wasn't sure. Like it was like she was waiting. I think that might have been the implication that she was telling the story to Clerk Chi was like her last act before she moves on. Because yeah, whether she I mean, was a ghost does, or not, it doesn't matter. It was yeah. the whole point was Rabbit was waiting to tell the secrets and history to um to someone who would make sure that it gets passed on. Yeah, and I think because Rabbit represents like the forgotten people that make history happen right she was you know empress is like confidant and support throughout her entire like political like throughout her entire coup um she was a pawn but also a like one of her only friends and she represents all of the the uh overlooked the silence the nameless the um insignificant people that turned turns out to play a much bigger role in in the game of <laughs> I political say chess. Yeah, I would say like kind of yeah. Her and her story represents all of the people that 
history tends to forget, right? Like, I think there's the chapter where she mentions like Sukai and his contributions to the cause. And you can see how relieved she is when Cleric Chi promises to remember and document Sukai's existence in the archives. Um, going back to the topic of the story feeling complete, I think I get the frustration that people want to know like more details about the actual coup. You know, you spend this whole time building up this um, this power move and then it gets resolved in a couple pages. But I don't think that was the point of the story in and of itself, right? I think the reason why it seems more like an incomplete ending is because if this was a movie, if this was a series, you're pretty much ending the story on the first act. Um, Cause it's like a story about a new empire and you end it with the ascension of, uh, of the Empress. So I can see why you would want more. And also, like you said, so much of the coup happens late in the book and you want to know more details. And even though that doesn't fit with the theme that Nevo wants for this book, I, I can't blame readers for wanting more. I mean, I'm one of the readers who <laughs> wish there, there was more details on it. I mean, at the same time, it's not actually the Empress's story, right? It's Rabbit's story and Rabbit's closure. And I think that's why the last chapter involves like a dream of rabbit moving on because this is this is not the story of how empress Inil took back her empire this is a story about how her trusty you know handmaiden um supported her the entire way and what she sacrificed to help her master um fulfill their their dreams and i think that's why the story ends with that dream sequence of rabbit finally catching up to sukai in like what I assume is the afterlife because in the end, this was her story. Yeah. Yeah. But like we said earlier, there is a sequel. It's standalone and um, it's set in the same world. So, you know, yeah, it's still a story about cleric Chi and their, you know, travels, but I don't think it has anything to do with the Empress or the new Empress. Yeah. Same here. Um, I'm probably going to read the, the sequel or the companion piece, just because I, like, I want more <laughs> and I will take what I can get. Uh, I I do really like Chi as a character. I really like the role that they played as a, as a historian cleric. I think it's because um, I watched the Castlevania animated series on Netflix and there's a character who is pretty much like who who pretty much is a cleric that whose job is to record history uh and pass on information to to the public through the generations so i'm glad that she is uh the main character in in the sequel that we get to see more of them yeah uh, so that the second book is coming out later this year right it's not out yet uh it's coming out in december I'll probably check it out too. I mean, it's, I think it's a little bit longer than this book, but it's still a novella. Um, and I was able to read this book in about a day. Yeah. I read this book twice within, within four hours uh, with the audiobook. So <laughs> yeah, like I am down to read 
One More Story by Nevo. Yeah. Any final thoughts about the book? Um, I like the fact that it was a quiet fantasy, that it was told from a commoner's point of view. Um, I like the themes. I like the fact that it was a feminist story. And I think Nevo did a really good job building the world in such a short amount of time. Yes, I wish there were more details and I wish I got more, but I think the story is complete overall. How about you, Marvin? Yeah, I enjoyed it too. I, um, You know that uh, Asian-inspired fantasy is something that I am super into. I'm into all things genre, especially if they're Asian-inspired. Um, I didn't have as much a problem about the sparse details. I actually enjoyed the fact that um, they mentioned fantastical things without really explaining them and allowing the reader to kind of fill in the blanks themselves. Yeah, it was a really fun, quick story about an empress who wouldn't take no for an answer and ended up sticking it to the man. Um, it was really satisfying to see um, the minister of the left get what's was coming to him. And I think I'm interested to see what else this world can offer. But again, I was really impressed by how much Neva was able to squeeze into 112 pages. I think that that was really impressive. Um, yeah. And as always, if any of you listening have any thoughts of your own about the Empress of Salt and Fortune, um, please let us know on our Goodreads forums. Um, there is an ongoing thread there discussing the book, and we'd love to hear your opinions. Um, but Yeah, even if they're disagreeing opinions. <laughs> <laughs> like... But with that... Um, That'll do it for our discussion of The Empress of Salt and Fortune um, by Nevo. Um, Rira, what are we reading for the month of September? We are reading Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning by Kathy Park Hong. So this book is nonfiction. It's a collection of essays by Kathy who kind of blends memoir writing with... Uh, just an exploration on race, on privilege within the Asian American community. And uh, I know that there, there are t- serious topics like anti-race, uh, anti-Blackness and uh, just kind of like the history of how Asian Americans have uh, grown within this country and uh, kind of the trauma that we feel as we grow up with um, kind of the trauma that we feel with each generation from what I understand. I've really wanted to read this book since Alexander Chi recommended it on Twitter. So I'm really excited to dive into it. It's been a while since we've ventured into nonfiction. Nonfiction isn't really a genre that we dive into often. So I'm really glad that we are um, giving it another whirl this time around. Yeah. Um, I've actually been meaning to pick up this book as well. So I'm glad that I'm now forced to read it um, for our book club. Uh, some people already read it. Uh, some people have already commented in our Goodreads forums about about reading it already. So, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And with that, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Um, thank you so much for listening, Rira. Thank you again for three amazing years as um, the co-host of this book club podcast. Thank you for being uh, the producer and forcing me to be on this podcast. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, for those of you who are who haven't listened to our first episode, uh, the reason why uh, the the catalyst for us to start this podcast was uh, I went to a mixer and someone mentioned there aren't there aren't any Asian American authors out outside of like Amy Tan or whatever. And I said, what are you talking about? There are so many modern contemporary Asian American authors. And I got angry and I said on Facebook, I want to, I want to make a book. I want to make a book club. And Marvin saw that post and said, Hey, let's start a podcast. And I said, (laughs) yes, without even thinking about it. And once I thought about it, I said, Oh no, what have I agreed to? (laughs) Um, and now here we are three years later. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Time thank you, really Marvin, flies. for taking uh, the initiative. <laughs> no problem. Um, I'm glad to. I, I've always wanted an excuse to read more books and now I have it. So uh, it's win-win for everybody. Uh, but thank you all so much for listening to Books and Boba. Um, thank you for all of you who have stuck with us for the past three years. Um, and Yeah. Here's to another year of Books and Boba. Um, Thanks for listening and we'll see y'all later. Bye, everyone. All right, bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Mira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Brian. Did you go to Saturday school as a kid? I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well, at our podcast, Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know. And that's Asian American pop culture. Ada is a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at the pioneering films that have led us to today. 